Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello, welcome back. I hope you had a good and safe Halloween. If you plan to vote on Election Day here in the States, that's tomorrow at least as far as the day this is scheduled to drop is concerned. So please vote. It is so important. Vote like your life depends on it. I promise this is the last episode. I will start by asking you to vote, at least until the next election rolls around. Um, Then there are no promises. And actually, then I'll probably start asking you to vote again because it is kind of a thing that I care about. um, And you should too. Okay, enough of that. Today we have another tragedy from Euripides. It is his take on the story of Orestes and Electra, which you probably guessed from the title, Electra. (laughs) This makes it the third time we have heard this story, um, and the fourth if we count the very brief mention Orestes gets in book four of the Odyssey, um, which would be the oldest retelling of the story that we've seen, um, but it's not as in-depth as what we get from the tragedians. So um, the first play we saw the story in was many episodes ago in Aeschylus's Libation Bearers. Um, So that would be Greek Tragedy 7, episode number 12. And we saw another version of the story in Sophocles' Electra, um, Greek Tragedy 14, episode number 49. So if you want to do some comparison, um, you can go back and re-listen. You should be able to find those in your feed. Um, They are old enough to have fallen off the feed on the blog, Um, at least as of now. The max that I can post there are the most recent 10 episodes, and this is episode 103. Um, I don't know how that happened. I do. I've done a lot of work. (laughs) Anyway, but it's fun. I enjoy it. Anyway, in case you've forgotten the basic story, Helen runs off to Troy with Paris. Uh, Menelaus has to go after her. His big brother Agamemnon leads the charge, but the winds won't blow, so Agamemnon sacrifices his daughter Iphigenia because that's the obvious solution to the problem. The Trojan War lasts 10 years. Clytemnestra sits at home, understandably grieving over her dead daughter and fuming over what her husband had done. Um, And when Agamemnon gets home with multiple Trojan women as slaves, most notably one princess by the name of Cassandra, Clytemnestra and Aegisthus kill Agamemnon. And Cassandra, for good measure. Then Clytemnestra and Aegisthus get married. Um, And that brings us to the tale of even more revenge told in The Libation Bearers and the two plays titled Electra. Um, I'll discuss some comparisons between the retellings from our three tragedians when I get to the analysis section, Um, and obviously we can talk tons about that over on the blog. Um, Today's version of the story comes from Euripides, obviously. (laughs) We don't have a date for when this play premiered. Um, One of my sources says around 420 BCE, and another says sometime in the 410s. it is one of Euripides's later plays, and something we'll see is that his plays get progressively darker. Just, just wait until we get to the Bacchae. Oy, that one's a doozy. Um, I am working from Paul Roche's 1998 translation, but there are plenty of public domain translations available online, so you should have no trouble finding something that's free and fairly easy to read. 
I actually had a couple of choices when I started this one. I have the Roche translation that I opted to reread, um, but I could also have gone with the John Davy translation. Um, but I like that Roche tries to maintain the poetry while Davy translates into prose. Um, I'm guessing based on the imprint that your public library would likely have the Davy translation. Um, the edition I own has excellent notes, so once we get to the analysis section, I'm sure that I will find myself referencing that book as well. Um, our cast consists of several familiar figures. We have Electra, Orestes, Pilates, and Clytemnestra. Um, Pilates is mute in this play, but he is still the ever-present companion to Orestes. Um, the unnamed characters include a peasant farmer, an old man who used to work for Agamemnon, and a messenger. Um, Castor and Polydukes, whom um, you probably know better by his Latin name of Pollux, Castor and Pollux, um, they will be our deus ex machina at the end of the play. And the chorus is made up of a group of women from Argos. While our two previous versions of this tale are set outside of the palace at Mycenae, this one is set outside the humble home of the unnamed peasant farmer, and that'll all be explained within the play. Um, so, with this as background, we'll take a short break before starting the summary. The play opens in front of the peasant farmer's home. Um, maybe the Mycenaean palace is in the background, or maybe the city. The farm is within walking distance of those places, but it is still away from them. The peasant enters. He provides a bit of background to our story. He speaks of how Agamemnon sailed to Troy, leaving behind two children, Orestes and Electra. He doesn't mention Iphigenia. Orestes, just a baby at the time, was secreted away by Agamemnon's old tutor and given to someone named Strophius, who took the baby to focus and raised him. This was to protect him from Aegisthus's murderous intent. Electra, though, stayed at the palace, and she grew up, and princes came from all across Greece to marry her. And this made Aegisthus nervous. If Electra were to marry one of these princes and have a son, that son would avenge his grandfather's murder. To prevent that, he locked her away. But this did not assuage his fears, so he decided that the only logical solution was to kill her. Clytemnestra did have some motherly feeling left and convinced Aegisthus to spare her daughter. He then came up with another plan. Instead of preventing Electra's marriage, he would force one to someone who was nobility but poor. The very peasant who is telling us all of this. He has enough rank to be married to a princess, but not enough means for their children to be a threat. Not that they have children. They haven't exactly done anything that would result in children. Electra doesn't want to, and the peasant, who is probably the only truly noble character in this play, respects her choice. I love this peasant. He is She's just a cool dude. Um, <laughs> I wish he had a name. What, what should, we, should we call him Bob? I don't know. Um, Electra enters. She speaks of how she chooses to do the menial task of gathering water because that is an outward show of how poorly she's been treated by Aegisthus and her mother, especially her mother, who now has children with Aegisthus, and those children hold higher rank than Electra and Orestes. The peasant exits to do some 
farmer things, and Electra goes about her business. Orestes and Pilates enter. Orestes tells Pilates that Aegisthus and Clytemnestra killed Agamemnon, and now the oracle at Delphi has told him, Orestes, to come back to Argos for revenge. He's already stopped by Agamemnon's grave and left a lock of hair and made a sacrifice. He's decided not to go to the palace because he thinks it would be best to stay someplace close to the border in case he needs to make a quick escape. And this hovel looks like a good choice. All of which Pilates should already know, since he and Orestes are always together, but, you know, someone has to fill the audience in. Um, (laughs) They see a servant girl coming and hide. Electra enters, being the servant girl that her brother just saw. She monologues about how unhappy she is, and how much she misses Agamemnon, and how much she wishes someone, God or man, would avenge his murder. It's cheery. Um, The chorus of peasant women enter. They encourage Electra to join them at a three-day festival at the Temple of Hera. Electra offers excuse upon excuse why she can't go. Ultimately, the leader gives up and blames Helen for all of the suffering in Greece. Um, She's Electra's aunt, in case you've forgotten. Orestes and Pilates step out of their hiding place. Electra's impulse is to flee and tells the course that they should too, but Orestes grabs her arm to stop her. Electra fears for her life, understandably, and Orestes tries to reassure her that he only kills people he doesn't like. He eventually convinces her to listen to him. He gives her news of her brother, in the third person, of course, and gets news of her life. He does the important thing of confirming that the chorus can be trusted. Electra asks him to go and tell Orestes about how miserable she is and that he is ridiculed in Argos for not avenging their father's murder. The peasant enters. He is suspicious of these strangers hanging out at his house and talking to his wife. Electra explains that they're friends of Orestes. The peasant invites the strangers to stay and holds open the door for everyone. Pilates exits, but Orestes and Electra stop in the doorway and keep talking. Orestes speaks about how a poor host with a good heart is far superior to a rich host with no heart. He reassures Electra that the oracle is never wrong and exits into the house. Electra asks her husband why he is spending what little they have on these strangers, a question which baffles the peasant because... Why shouldn't they be good hosts? Like I said, he's the most noble character in this play. Electra shrugs at this response and asks him to go and fetch the old man who helped raise Agamemnon. He was banished and now works as a shepherd nearby. He's the one who secreted Orestes away to focus, and he'll be glad to hear that the boy has grown up safely. She exits into the house. The peasant pauses before he exits to comment on how money may not be the root of all evil, because money can buy food or medicine, and then he exits. The chorus sings about Achilles' shield, which, okay, um, but in the final stanza of their song, they mention one child of Tyndarius and predict the death of that child. Um, and something we haven't covered is that Tyndarius just happens to be the father of one Clytemnestra. The old tutor enters looking every part of his new shepherding job, and he's brought a lamb for Electra, and he cries when he sees her. He tells her that he passed Agamemnon's tomb on his way to her house, and it is clear that someone has been there recently. There are the remnants of a sacrifice and a lock of hair. It has to have been Orestes. 
Electra is skeptical. So the tutor proposes some ways that she can be certain. You know, if the hair matches or oh, if they have the same size foot, um, maybe she'll recognize his clothes. And Electra counters all of these with a great deal of logic. I mean, why, why would they have the same size foot? Plus, he was just a baby when he left. It's not like he's going to be wearing the same clothes as when she last saw him. She tells the tutor to just wait a few minutes because she has guests who have brought news of Orestes. And with the perfect timing that Theodore affords, Orestes and Pilates enter. Electra introduces them to the tutor, and the tutor immediately recognizes Orestes. He's got this scar on his forehead. Um, and Orestes shrugs and laughs and says, you got me! <laughs> and then the plotting begins. Orestes will be able to find Aegisthus easily. He'll be in the meadow where, uh, where his horses graze, and he'll certainly invite um, a stranger to the pending feast. Remember, there's that um, festival of Hera coming up. Orestes will go to the feast and kill Aegisthus there. Clytemnestra won't be there, um, but Electra will see to her. She'll, she'll send word that she had a baby 10 days ago, which means it's time for, for the rites for newborns, their kind of naming ceremony. You know, most religions have something like it, you know, a bris, a christening, some sort of dedication um, or initiation for a newborn. Um, and then they'll be able to kill Clytemnestra too. The three conspirators pray to Zeus and Hera and Gaia, and then Orestes, Pilates, and the tutor exit, and Electra sits and waits. The chorus sings a song about the curse on the house of Atreus, and in case you've forgotten, Atreus is the father of Agamemnon and Menelaus. Cries are heard from offstage, which is why we know we can't be too far away from the palace. Um, a messenger enters and proclaims victory. Orestes has killed Aegisthus. And he spares no detail in describing the murder. I, however, will let you read that for yourself. It is... <clears throat> Oy. <sighs> of course, Aegisthus' servants were prepared to fight back, but Orestes held up his hand and pronounced that he has now avenged his father's death, and everyone is cool with that. Um, Electra and the chorus sing an ancient Greek version of Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead. Orestes and Pilates enter along with the body of Aegisthus. Electra praises the two men and gloats over the corpse. Orestes directs his servants to take the body inside so that it is hidden when Clytemnestra arrives. They see her coming and Electra does an excellent Lady Macbeth in helping Orestes screw his courage to the sticking place because he's not so sure about the whole matricide thing. And he and Pilates exit into the house. Clytemnestra atten enters, attended by the Trojan women that Agamemnon brought home as slaves. Except for Cassandra, of course, because Clytemnestra killed her back before this story started. Um, and and the scene between Clytemnestra and Electra, it, it's intense. Electra is, I mean, well, we've already seen how Electra is. Um, and Clytemnestra, well, she tries to remind Electra of how not great of a father and husband Agamemnon was. Um, she speaks of Iphigenia, of how the whole war wasn't to protect his own wife or his own children. It was it was for Helen. So we can see how she feels about her sister. It's all about Helen. Helen, Helen, Helen. I mean, all of that was bad enough. But then he brought Cassandra back. 
to be his concubine when he already had a wife at home? Step too far. But despite that, it really boils down to Iphigenia. What if it had been Menelaus who ran off, she asks. Would she have had to go after him? Would she have had to kill Orestes in order to save her sister's husband? Because that's what Agamemnon did, right? He killed his daughter to save his brother's wife. Of course she killed him. It was the only way to get justice. Electra turns it back on her. Okay, maybe he did deserve it. But what did Electra or Orestes have to do with it? They have suffered because of what Clytemnestra did. And Clytemnestra, she apologizes. And she says that she loves her children, even though they love their father more. And she says that she isn't proud of everything in her life. She's not perfect. Regrets. She's had a few. Too soon? (laughs) But Electra doesn't want to hear it. They argue some more, and Electra starts working on her ploy of being a new mother. Eventually, the two women exit into the house. The chorus sings a good old-fashioned murder song, and, of course, this song is immediately followed by the sound of Clytemnestra being murdered. Orestes, Electra, and Pilates enter, and the open door to the house reveals the bodies of Clytemnestra and Aegisthus. Orestes and Electra sing a reprise of Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead. Well, except that Orestes is starting to feel a little icky about what they just did. Um, And with a crash of thunder, Castor and Polydukes appear ex machina. Castor is the only one of the famous twins to speak because we already have two actors on stage playing Orestes and Electra. And you recall, we cannot have more than three. Um, Now, you may be thinking... They're an interesting option for Deus Ex Machina, but they make perfect sense in this situation because they happen to be brothers to Helen and Clytemnestra, making them uncles of Orestes and Electra. And of course, you can't have one of the twins without the other. Castor says that Clytemnestra got what she deserved, but it was still wrong. He tells Orestes that he's going to be chased by the Furies and that he should go to Athens for trial. He won't be sentenced to death when he gets there, and the Furies will be swallowed by the earth and become a new oracle. Then Orestes is to settle in Arcadia. The people of Argos will see to the burial of Aegisthus, and Menelaus will see to the burial of Clytemnestra. He's just gotten home from Egypt. That's where Helen was, by the way. She was never in Troy. Zeus sent a phantom version of Helen to Troy and sent the real one to Egypt because he wanted to mess with the mortals. As for Electra, she and Pilates will marry and move to focus. Brother and sister tearfully say goodbye for the last time, and Electra and Pilates exit. Castor urges Orestes to leave before the Furies get him, and he flees. Castor and Polydikes say farewell to the chorus, and the play ends. So, there we have our third and final Greek tragedy take on the story of Orestes and Electra and Agamemnon and Clytemnestra. 
Um, Euripides and Sophocles wrote their versions around the same time, and they both chose to focus on Electra over Orestes, um, which is interesting. The bones of the story are the same in each telling, but each man had his own take on the tale. Aeschylus's trilogy is really about justice. Um, we saw that. It's about this shift from vengeance to justice. Um, but the versions um, by Sophocles and Euripides are standalone plays. They're not part of trilogies like Aeschylus. Um, and, and they're much more focused on vengeance, not, not justice. Which, again, is, is interesting since they're the later plays when theoretically democracy in Athens was more well-established. <laughs> um, but the role of Electra evolves over the three versions. Um, in all three, she is waiting for Orestes. But if we work on the assumption that Euripides is the final version, which we... We're not sure whether Sophocles or Euripides came first because they were written around the same time. But, you know, structurally, thematically, the way we look at this character, the evolution makes sense to call Euripides the, the third version. Um, so if that is the final version, she has grown from a very passive character into a very active participant in the murder of Clytemnestra, not just in the plotting to bring her to her house for the murder, but in actually being there. And not that we see it happening, but we can presume that she's got a knife too. Um, the way what we see of her on stage, it, it's believable that she is literally an active participant in the murder. Um, and I have to say... I still think Clytemnestra is the juiciest role to play in any of these versions. Um, I like the character of Electra better in Euripides than in either Sophocles or um, Aeschylus. I mean, Aeschylus, she doesn't have much of a character at all. She's just, like I said, she's totally passive in, in Aeschylus. Um, as I noted, she has, she's got this certain Lady Macbeth about her. And I mean, let's face it, Lady Macbeth is a pretty great role <laughs> if you're, if you're looking for Shakespeare, right? Um, but I still find Clytemnestra to be the more complex of the two, the two women in this play. Um, Euripides shows her as a flawed human. I mean, of course, I mean, she did kill Agamemnon and all, but she is not heartless. She is, at her core, a mother. Um, why does she murder Agamemnon? I mean, yeah, there was that whole Cassandra thing, but she simply cannot forgive him for killing Iphigenia. Um, it is through her actions that Electra is still alive. She speaks of wanting to see Orestes because he's her son, but being afraid of what will happen when she does, because she knows that if she sees him again, it will be for revenge. Um, despite the strain and her relationship with Electra, she still goes to see her grandson, or what she thinks is a grandson. No grandson turns out to exist, but but she's still there for her daughter, who's who has a newborn that she didn't even she didn't even know she was pregnant, right? Because she wasn't, but she. She cares about her children. She loves loves her children. Um, she has a lousy way of showing it. But that's, I think, what makes her so wonderfully complex to play. I would not want to be her as an actual human being. 
but to play her on stage, that sounds great. Um, another interesting aspect of this version is that Aegisthus never appears on stage, at least not alive. We hear about him. Uh, we hear a lot of awful things about him, but we have to trust that everything we hear is true. And is Electra really a reliable narrator? I mean, what we see of Clytemnestra does not completely match what Electra tells us about her. Um, but Aegisthus is never given the chance to speak for himself. Not that the Aegisthus presented by either Sophocles or Aeschylus is particularly redeeming, but at least he gets a chance to show his colors in their in their versions. So which version is your favorite? Who would you want to play? And in which version? I'd play Clytemnestra in any of them, seriously. Um, <laughs> Cassandra would be okay too in, uh, in Agamemnon, but I still like Clytemnestra better. Anyway, um, what do you think Euripides has to say about nobility? I touched on that a little bit in the summary, um, I didn't, but I didn't go into that anymore. Uh, there is a discussion prompt over on the blog, triumvirclio.school.blog. <laughs> the URL and maybe a link, depending on your platform, are in the show notes. On Wednesday, we will read book 10 of the Odyssey. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.